I'm Brad Hill. I'm Julia McClung. Hi, Julia. Hi, Brad. What'd you have for breakfast? Uh, Jimmy John's sub. Good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, on 9th Street. Yeah, on 9th Street. Yes, I had a Jimmy John's sub just Wednesday night. That's my default. So if I don't cook something, Jimmy John's is my go-to for... And, you know, I'm not supposed to like it. There's like a political mm-hmm. thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, apparently he's he's into big game hunting. Uh-huh. But. Do you get the big game sub? Yeah. <laughs> I get the the antelope and rare uh, rare animal double meat sub. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great conversation with Mike Porath. Yeah, of we the sure Mighty, did. And we're going to hear that later in the show. I want to mention that. It was, it was, um. It was touching and fun and and inspiring, and I mm-hmm. enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, he left a corporate media career to start a website called The Mighty, which is for people who are somehow connected with developmental disabilities, caretakers, mm-hmm. parents. And it is a great storytelling site, and he himself has a fascinating story about how it got started. And we talked with him, and we'll listen to that later in this podcast. Hey, so never point. Okay, never point. I got a good never point this this week. Uh-huh. All right, we'll start with you. What is it? Okay. I have never lost my car keys. Uh, hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> this might qualify as cheating. And this illustrates... How easy it is to gain cheap never points when you're playing with just one other person. I have <laughs> I have lost my car it's keys. Also, it also reinforces the your, your constant statement that I'm devious in, in playing games. Ruthless. Uh, here's what happened. This morning, I was on my way out the door to buy a piece of equipment for our studio, and... Uh, And I couldn't go because I've lost both my car keys. One of them has been lost for months. And the other one I realized I lost about 10 days ago, but forgot that I had lost it and was reminded when I tried to go somewhere this morning. (laughs) So um, do you lose things a lot? As a good friend should, I'm taking advantage of that (laughs) frustrating and humiliating thing that happened to you today for my own benefit. You know... Um, when I my reaction to losing the car keys, uh, which I looked for for about ten minutes this morning and then gave up, my reaction reminded me of how you dealt with losing your refrigerator, which we've talked about. <laughs> yes, you 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 have simply cut refrigerate food right. refrigeration out of your I, life. That's yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking, well, I might never drive again. And the re- <laughs> of course, I, I guess it really won't play out that way. But but the way I feel about it is that. Every day, I have so much I want to do. Mm -hmm. Never get it all done. Every minute is precious. And even though I need those keys, the idea of spending hours trying to find them them. seems like a waste of life energy to me. And I haven't given up completely on food refrigeration. I I took home the fridge I had in my office, so I do have a tiny fridge there. That's right. So the answer might for you just be to buy a scooter. Yes, (laughs) I like that solution. (laughs) All right, back to the never game. Okay, yeah, so, so I get a point. S- are, are you seriously going to... Oh, of gonna, course. Oh, come on. Absolutely. I've oh, never well, lost my car keys. All right. I, was, I had another one, too, and I've, I can use that one. Do you I've, want me to get two points this I've week? never been born in Mississippi. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> no, we know things about each no, other. No, no, but that's not... I've never even been in Mississippi. I, might, I could just as easily have come in today, and my never point could have been, you know what? I've never lost my car keys. That wouldn't be because I knew you... 
that's a perfectly reasonable never point to have never. First how of many all, people, not to mention the fact that you said that it's so easy to play when it's just two of us playing. Yeah. But I bet you, I mean, there are tens of millions of people who have lost their car keys. First of all, is it true even that you have never misplaced your car keys for a minute? You've never had to look have, for your car keys. I have never had to cancel a trip somewhere <laughs> because I couldn't buy my car keys. <laughs> to buy a piece of crucial equipment that we need. <laughs> that's never happened. <laughs> oh, God. I, I think that's right. a legit we, point. That is can, a legitimate point. I'll give you the point because <laughs> I want you to stay happy and you seem to want this so much. <laughs> you can enter it into your spreadsheet. You've gotten so organized about spreadsheet. I, I, I have. Do you remember how I was laughing before we started? That devious, yes. sort of underhanded, yes. evil... The evil dictator laugh. That was why. <laughs> so even you know it, that it's evil to get this point. That was what gave me such delight. <sighs> All right. Okay. okay. Get, take that point, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get a similar point. Okay. I have never taken Ambien. Okay. Yeah, you have, to, a, you have to say I have it. To, I've got to give it to you. Yeah. I have to give it to you. I fear our game is degrading into trivial point no. accumulation. So hoarding, my, hoarding do point. You, <laughs> <laughs> is that what all games deteriorate into? <laughs> it's that, that whole thing they tell you when you're a kid. It's not whether you win or lose. Oh. It's how... Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's called a game. Because <laughs> you're winning it. Um. The last and ambient isn't nights. the only thing you take, right? No. Okay. No, it's not. No, right. Are we going to really drag out all of my addictions no. right here? No, we don't need to. Okay. Just, well, to, just to point out that you layer I, one med upon another in order to go to sleep look, every night. the pharmaceutical industry is struggling, struggling <laughs> in the world today. And I feel like it's up to all of us to do our part. Mm -hmm. And we know that better than most people in the country because we live right next to RTP. Right, where there are many, many struggling <laughs> pharmaceutical companies. Struggling global empires, imperialistic <laughs> dominate. Okay. So Brad, uh, in our conversation with Steve Young, I, he, he inspired me, he inspired me in several ways, but he inspired me in one very concrete way. Uh, do, you, do you remember when he was talking about the song, My Bathroom? Yes. My bathroom. <laughs> My bathroom is a private kind of place, very special kind of place, the only place where I can stay, making faces at my face. And so I went to the website, the industrial oh. music website, and I, mm. I pulled up my bathroom and I listened to it and I decided, you know what? I'm going to buy a new toilet seat. And it's beautiful. I got the best toilet seat. It's so nice. Oh, you bought it? I did. I did. Mm -hmm. It's installed. The old one, the paint had cracked. So I'm, very, I'm a big fan of a wooden toilet seat. Oh, I yes. want a white painted wooden toilet seat. That's oh. I'm very specific. You don't want it, a natural wood look. Though. No, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. No. no. Um, and it should be like a good molded wood. Substantial. Why do you want very it to be specific. wood? Why do you want it to be wood if it's going to be painted white? Because it's heavier. That none of the plastic ones. I mean, unless you're going to spend. Did you know that you could spend three hundred dollars on a toilet seat? 
I'm not surprised. Why would anyone spend $300 on a toilet seat? How much did you spend? I spent, I thought it was highway robbery and I spent 50. Oh, you thought that was too expensive? I, 50 bucks? Well, it's not a plastic piece of junk. You bought a wood toilet seat. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's so molded what you, wood. It wasn't like rough hewn from a, a Swedish or Norwegian <laughs> maple. and Handcrafted somebody. in Maine. <laughs> they and all, purchased on Etsy. <laughs> Well, thank you for choosing our podcast to make this announcement. (laughs) No one else would let me announce it on their podcast. I don't have much choice. The song My Bathroom can be found and heard again at the Industrial Musicals website. That's industrialmusicals.com. Many thanks to Steve Young for introducing us to that wonderful website and the Industrial Musicals project. And now it's time for a sit-stay guest conversation, this week with Mike Porath, founder of TheMighty.com. We spoke with Mike from West Coast to East Coast using Skype. Mike, it's great to hear your voice again. It's good good to hear yours as well, Brad. We're talking to Mike Porath, founder of the website TheMighty. And Mike, in describing what The Mighty is and what it means to you, I would like to start, if it's all right with you, by reading the first two paragraphs of what you posted on the site when you began it, about why you started it. Is it okay with you if I read those? Of course. Okay. So I'm speaking now in Mike's voice. Five years ago, my wife and I had a truly awful day. In the span of a few hours, we got thumped twice. In the morning, we learned that the baby she was pregnant with was short one organ and maybe more. In the afternoon, we learned that our struggling two-year-old daughter had a rare chromosome disorder. And as the doctor put it, her mind probably wouldn't develop beyond that of a small child. Lying in bed that night, we were shaken and lost. This was not the life or family we had planned. I remember feeling small and hollow, a powerless husband and father. Whether it was a futile attempt to comfort my wife or a way for me to make sense of it all, I told her that we were going to do something good with this. How? she asked. I had no idea. We were in tears. So Mike, what happened after that? So what happened after that is we we learned a lot more. We learned much more about my daughter's condition, uh, which is called DUPE15Q syndrome. It's a rare chromosome disorder. Um, It includes, uh, she has autism uh, as well as a number of other challenges. Um, and it turns out that the the uh, baby that my wife was pregnant with, um, he has one kidney rather than the two that almost everybody else has. But other than that, um, he is a you know very typical kid, um, and it doesn't really you know affect him day to day at all. So um, we've since had a a, a third child, a, a a boy. So our kids are now eight, six, and three. Um, but what you know, going back to the condition that my daughter has. Um, we we learned a lot from parents of other kids uh, that that um, that have the same condition my daughter has, and uh, that really led into creating the mighty because we saw a lot of places, a lot of health sites out there with medical information. But what really helped us more than anything else was just talking to other parents and finding out, you know, hearing that they were you know, happy and things were going well for their family when we were, you know, hit with this pretty devastating news was really encouraging saying, you know, we can, we can figure this out. 
Um, and that's really why we created the Mighty. We felt like no matter what kind of condition anyone's facing, whether it's autism or Alzheimer's or breast cancer or mental illness or anything out there, um, that we wanted to really build communities around that, that uh, people could, almost like a platform where people could connect and uh, kind of explain the stories of, of you know, some of the, the challenges, the, the, the milestones that they hit and the disappointments they have as well, um, kind of all of that. Mike, I love this story, and it's something that's very close to me. My my background, I've, I've worked for many years, I don't any longer, but worked for many years with adults and children with developmental disabilities. And I was always struck, I've frequently worked in home care settings, and the, the families that embraced the strengths of their children with with disabilities were always the families that had the happiest children, uh, the happiest relationships with themselves, the ones who could never come to terms with that and became, uh, you know, they they had such a difficult time. They they never got past the sensation of this was our fault, either either self blame or feeling as if something was put upon them. Can you talk a little bit about how a positive a positive approach and identifying strengths differently has has helped you and helps uh, the readers of the mighty. Sure, um, I think that's a that's a really good point, and it's kind of at the heart of what the, you know the mighty is all about. It's why it's called the mighty, which is a, kind of a positive, uplifting term versus you know something like disabilitiesanddisorders.com or <laughs> something like that. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think that um, it's easy to kind of get you know to get lost and to um, just, you know, feel guilty and all of those things. But um, when you do see, you know, particularly for parents who have a child with special needs, when you really think of your child first and the disability second, I think that really helps. Because uh, when I think of my daughter, um, she's my kid. She's just a sweet little girl. Uh, and then she also happens to have a bunch of challenges. Um, but I don't, I don't think of her as uh, a disabled child as much as just my kid, you know, who has some challenges. And I think that mentality helps. Um, but again, what, what really drew us out was, um, you know, that my daughter's condition is quite rare. There's when we joined uh, the nonprofit, um, it was there was only 300 families worldwide um, that were a, a part of this. It's that's now grown. Uh, I think we're probably around 1500 families now. Um, uh, but we think it's actually a much more, it's not quite that rare. Uh, people are being di di diagnosed with it more often. But connecting both online and in person with other parents taught us so much. Um, to be honest, a lot of the doctors didn't know um, all that much about it. So we learned much more from the parents. And seeing the parents and, and knowing, seeing them smile and laugh, it just made it a lot easier to say, you know what, we can continue living our lives right now. And um, we just have to embrace this and really, you know, uh, you know, focus much more on that, and and not necessarily think what does this mean five years out or ten years out or twenty years out, but what does it mean today? What can we do today? And um, that those kind of things we learn from other parents. I love that. And just on that same note, you said the laughing. What role does humor play? Oh, it's it's huge. I don't think you can. <laughs> I don't think you can. Uh, face any of these kinds of things well without humor. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary. You can't take yourself too seriously. You can't take your kids too seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, without that, in the marriage too, I mean, 
uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, there's all kinds of challenges uh, in marriages when something like this happens. You have a kid with, with particular challenges. And I think being able to laugh about some of the situations, you know, we had, I remember I was at a Wendy's with my uh, daughter and my wife at one point. Um, and, uh, you know, she pointed to a guy in a red sweater uh, who was walking by and called him Elmo. And <laughs> you got to laugh about that. You know? Uh, but those are the kinds of things that it's, you know, this is, that goes back to your point about embracing it. And um, I think humor is really among the most important things. Mike, I think the site produces a blend of user-submitted stories and editorial staff content. Can you describe how that has evolved? Sure. At the beginning, it was just uh, uh, staff material. So I hired um, the top writer at the Huffington Post uh, when we started this. And so she was running the good news vertical at Huffington Post. Is that and Megan? That's Megan, yes. Uh, and so she started by just producing three stories a day. And we looked for stories that were that we felt would, you know, um, that people could relate to that were out there. And some of them were 100% original where she would find a story and do the interview and do all that. And others were curated where the story may have existed elsewhere, but we reframed it and kind of, you know, try to make a point with it. Um, and then we started reaching out to, uh, it really it started as mommy bloggers um, who were already writing about their, um, you know, their own children and some of the situations they faced. And we said, hey, we really like, you know, love this one post that you had. Would you, you know, consider sharing that on our site? This is what we do. This is what we're all about. And lo and behold, not a single person, I think out of the first 50 people we contacted, not a single one said no. They really <laughs> wow. liked w what we were doing and they were happy to, you know, the sh share the story with us. Um, over the course of a few months, we you know got to the point where we had uh, about a half million you know readers per month, and you know things were starting to take off, and so we we finally hit a point where, uh, when we had a million or more, uh, the, it kind of flipped where instead of us reaching out to other people asking them would they consider sharing stories, uh, people started submitting them to us, and that was a that was kind of a tipping point, um, and so then we. We realized that a lot of the stories we were getting, they weren't, you know, a lot of these are not from professional writers. So we had to kind of coach them into the kinds of stories to tell um, rather than telling the, their entire life story, focusing on particular moments, um, things like that. And uh, so now we, we now have had over a thousand writers, you know, on the site, and most of them have been um, published more than once, um, some, you know, 15, 20 times. Uh, and so that's the bulk of the content on our site now is from contributors. There is hardly a more powerful editorial army on the planet than mommy bloggers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and it started with mommy bloggers, but now we're branching out to all kinds of different conditions. So we've had people, you know, um, write about whether it's being blind or write about, um, again, facing something like breast cancer, um, you know, the grief of uh, losing a loved one. Um, I mean, all sorts of things. Well, our most popular video, uh, we had a filmmaker who really liked, you know, loved what we were doing on our site. He shot a film um, for us just about what it's like to have um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And, you know, that, that really took off. I think it now has maybe, you know, a quarter million, you know, views online. Um, so we started branching out into all sorts of different conditions. But it did, it did start with mommy bloggers at the beginning. Mike, a question for our, our listeners who have not yet seen The Mighty, and we hope that they, they all um, go and visit the site. One thing that strikes me, it's, it's visually beautiful, it's easy to navigate, 
And some of the topics that we're talking about might make people uncomfortable, but I want to make sure that we sort of highlight some of the topics are definitely not what you would expect from a site that is is uh, geared toward persons with disabilities or challenges. And I like the, the one title, Wrestlers with and Without Disabilities Fight in Rough, Rude, Rule-Breaking League. So they're, they're really interesting takes. It's not it's not just getting a job, but it's following passions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, some people looked at what we were doing at the at the very beginning and felt like we were just trying to focus on inspirational stories. And I do think a lot of the stories do have an element of inspiration, you know, if you read it. Um, but I think our folk, our stories really focus on the honesty. Um, and people, you know, are I, I'm amazed by how candid. Uh, and vulnerable people are when they publish stories with us uh, because they they really tell it like it is. They talk about what they have dealt with or what they are dealing with, and um, that's really helped us, you know, create a real community around this because there's not a lot of places online people can do that uh, within where the, where they feel safe. And um, but we want to focus on all those. That particular story you mentioned about the you know the wrestling that was again an original piece written by you know one of our staff members. Um, who, who, you know, struck upon it, you know, found a, a little nugget somewhere and wanted to, you know, go after that story. But th that's a wrestling league that's been going on for over 20 years um, where they actually bring people with disabilities and have them wrestle either other people with disabilities or, um, or people without. And it was really just to, to kind of show that um, this can be very empowering for folks, you know, and, uh, and it's, a lot of people uh, with disabilities have, um, they still seek out lots of, you know, physical activity. And this is just mm -hmm. something some people like. Uh, and we try to highlight those stories. Mike, you left a job um, in a corporate media career to start The Mighty. Was that a difficult decision? Uh, yes and no. It, it, it certainly was financially. Um, you know, I, I was making a really good salary and uh, you know, my wife does not work. She stays home with the kids. I shouldn't say she doesn't work. She's going to kill me for that. <laughs> she, takes, she works more than me. She, she you know, really uh, holds down the, the, the household. But um, uh, but we didn't have an income when I started this. And that was uh, that was certainly difficult. Um, but the part that wasn't hard is I it reached a point in my life. I'm, uh, I'll be turning 40 this year where um, I just wanted to do something I really believed in. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things I'm not very good at. But one of the things I felt like I was quite good at was, uh, you know, building community online and the, the, the editorial side. I started as a journalist. I really thought I understood the, storing, the storytelling aspects, um, how to build a community, how to build an audience online. And um, I know from a you know, from turning to turn this into a business on the you know revenue side, that a lot of advertising, you know, companies that advertise want to be a part of this kind of content. They want to support it. So I felt like it would really work. And um, the most important thing is my wife was just super supportive. You know, she, you know, I told her I said if we get this thing going, I know I can grow it, and uh, and then we'll go out and we'll get investors, and you know, I'll be able to <laughs> at least at least bring home a little bit of a salary. And so that's where we're at right now. And we, we have some, you know, awesome investors on board and, and what we're doing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't hard in the sense of, I just reached a point where I said, this is what I really want to do. Combine my professional expertise with something I really, really care about. And, you know, let's build something that actually really helps people. 
That's a wonderful and inspiring story. Um, I'm, I'm glad to get the business update uh, about having investors, and I wonder if you would mind talking a little more about the business vision. Um, what is the plan here? Will the site eventually be advertising supported? It seems kind of hard to imagine in one way, but I'm sure there, there must be endemic advertisers um, who would match up well with the content of the site, or is it a different plan? Um, so the plan is to turn it into a business, and the, we believe the first wave of, of revenue will come through advertising. Uh, and so um, right now we're still focusing on the, the you know, audience growth of the site. And, um, but what we're trying to do is develop kind of a new model for advertising on the site that is very different from what you would see on typical websites where you see little boxes all over the site and they just, you know, they run ads that are not relevant really at all. Um, what we're trying to do is uh, we want to go out and find uh, big brands who care about, you know, kind of what we're doing and want to kind of support this as more of a patron or a benefactor. And, um, and I, I think they get a lot of goodwill along the way. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, big co companies that um, our, our audience, by the way, is about, uh, it's over three quarters of our audience is, is women. Uh, and that's a very attractive market for a lot of advertisers. And so um, we think that they're, you know, they want to kind of support this kind of content. Um, we're, we're talking to a few brands right now about, uh, you know, bringing them on in, in this way. Um, and, you know, Brad, you and I worked together at AOL years and years ago, and, uh, you know, we started a site there called uh, Good News Now, um, and that, you know, when we launched that, it had a $2 million sponsorship from Sears. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, Huffington Post Good News, which, you know, Megan, our editor, came from, that was, you know, I don't think in the seven years that it, it's existed, it, it ever has gone a month without a, a sponsor. So our first goal was to really grow a meaningful audience and community on the site, um, and then a matter of now that we've got, you know, far more people, we have millions and millions of people coming each month. Um, now I think we want to get some brands involved. Yeah. That seems like a meaningful number of visitors for any brand advertiser who would be interested in, um, burnishing the reputation of their brand by being affiliated with the mighty. Um, can you uh, millions and millions of visitors? I'm so impressed, Mike. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of a question to ask about this, except congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I, I was interested, Mike, to hear about, you, you were talking about, you know, touching lives. What, what are some of your favorite stories about how the Mighty has touched the lives of the families? Um, I mean, that's really the most surprising thing from our first year. I was very confident that we could grow audience. Um, I did not quite get how meaningful a lot of our stories would be to people. We've, we, you know, get thank you emails every day. Um, and then probably once every, you know, week or two, we get one that, that literally has our newsroom in tears, um, because, you know, it, a story may have changed someone's lives. I mean, we've had, um, uh, there was one that I, that I wrote about on the site where a woman, um, she said she found our site after, you know, she said, I wish I would have found it seven years ago. She went through a, an experience um, where, uh, you know, she lost a, a child who was, you know, quite young to, uh, um, uh, to a, a rare disease. And um, she and her husband had really struggled with whether or not to, to try to have kids again. And um, she, she came up, upon our site and started reading more and more stories. And she referenced several of them in the email. And um, 
after reading so many of them and seeing how people were dealing with a lot of the, you know, the challenges, um, ultimately, you know, told us that she and her husband had the discussion after her <laughs> spending all this time on our site and saying they decided they're going to have more kids. And um, to think that, a, you know, a website and some writer who had no idea when they submitted a story to us um, what impact that might have on others, you know, had that impact on, on this woman and, and her family, uh, that's, that's really amazing. And that goes really to the, the power of storytelling and, and how, how powerful, um, you know, people's experiences when shared uh, can be for others. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, Mike, it's been delightful to talk to you. Uh, thanks for making the time to speak with us. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I love talking about this stuff because it's, it's fun and, you know, there's nothing else I'd, I'd rather be doing than, than uh, really building the site and building the community around it. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished so far and uh, onward and upward to you and to your wife and to your family and to your staff. And congratulations to all the people who have found you and benefited from the service that, that you guys are providing. I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. We'll stay in touch, Mike. All right. Take care, Brad. Bye-bye. See you, Julia. Bye. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk to Mike. I am too. TheMighty.com. That is a worthy a site, a web destination to go no matter who you are. And it's also on Facebook, The Mighty Site, and on Twitter, The Mighty Site, so we can follow them there as oh, well. Oh, good. That's good to know. I was so impressed by the progress he's made fairly quickly. I, I don't remember exactly when he launched the site, but it, it is not, you know, it's not a legacy site on the internet by any means. And right. uh, millions of visitors and a thousand people contributing their stories. Yeah. Boy. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It really is. That's great. And he has his own good story, too. You know, leaving his career, in a sense, leaving his corporate career, uh, to start this venture um, with the vision that a professionally run media site can do good in the world. I love that. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Hmm... The long pauses I take to think about (laughs) questions. So this is not something that's top of mind for you. Like, if only I could just be different in this way. No, you know, I'm kind of okay with how I am. Mm -hmm. I'd like to have better arms. I want really muscular arms. Uh Uh-huh. I would like to change that. (laughs) Okay, well. (laughs) And there's just nothing I can do. Uh Uh-huh. You're trying. You've tried. What do you mean? To change your arms is nothing you can do? No. What could, poss- what could I possibly do? Oh, I don't, well, I'm exercises? sure it's genetic. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried Did working out? No. <laughs> I just... <laughs> oh, I wish everybody could have seen your expression when you said that. <laughs> I guess, to, to put a finer point on it, what do I wish would be different with absolutely no effort on my part? <laughs> Not what can I change about myself, but what would I like to have okay. different? All right. Well, first of all, I was thinking more of behavioral things or psychological things than the shape of your arms and the strength of your arms. I'd like to sleep. Mm, if I could change one go. thing, it would be to sleep. Okay. So it's more, maybe what we're really investigating here is how we would have been born differently, you know, a different set of characteristics, mm-hmm. if we could choose one change to make. So sleep, yeah. Tell me more about that. Have you always had trouble sleeping? Always. I think part of it is that I work on a different clock. I mean, there are Mm. different rhythms. There are different internal clocks. 
I think my mother and I both work on a night clock versus a day clock. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, I mean, even as a kid, staying up late and yes. getting up in the morning was always difficult. It was always mm-hmm. difficult for my mother. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. It's, and we force ourselves to live, and I don't think it's good for us. It's, I don't think it's good for you emotionally or psychologically or physically to force yourself it's as if we are shift work shift worker syndrome Mm -hmm. is actually a thing and people who force themselves to change shifts all the time but we force ourselves to live in a completely different shift than what's natural for us Mm -hmm. well i agree with this and at the same time during stretches of my life when i've been able to have a natural sleeping schedule Mm -hmm. It has led to a bad result. Oh, really? For many years, I was a freelance writer writing books. And so I could sleep whenever I wanted, get up whenever I wanted. And I naturally inclined to staying up very late Mm -hmm. and sleeping rather late, very late in Mm -hmm. the morning. And I began to feel alienated from the world in a way because my schedule was so different from other people's. What was late for you on both sides? Oh, a typical bedtime for me was 2.30. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And, um, you know, I'd sleep until 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would, and it would get later and later. It would continually, incrementally shift to uh, skew the whole schedule toward darkness and lateness um, to where I felt like I wasn't seeing sunlight as much as a person should. Should, yeah. I get that. The sunlight's important to me, but how and how else you felt alienated just because people were awake when you were asleep and asleep when you were awake? I think so. And I'm conflicted about this because I love solitude and especially when yeah, you're... Yeah, it doesn't, it's not sounding bad to me. No, I so. know, I know. Um, and it isn't bad in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I had a, an extremely creative career at that time. I was writing all the time. So nighttime writing has always been wonderful and just nighttime being alone has always been wonderful for me. Ever since I was a kid, as you said, I, uh, I would stay up late listening to the radio. Um, loved that. And then had terrible trouble. Always have had monstrous trouble getting up in the morning. I guess we discussed yeah. this once before. It's the worst time. It, it really is. It's just day. debilitating. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to W.C. Fields records when I was little. Oh. My parents would always put on, maybe that's why I couldn't sleep, is that I was listening to <laughs> Never Give a Sucker an Even Break the whole time <laughs> during my formative years. Oh, so do you think that your sleep pattern was created by being entertained at night? Well, also or? my surly attitude. I think mm-hmm. it was subliminally. <laughs> I have a very W.C. Fields outlook on life. So now, we, uh, you especially, you, you uh, force yourself to sleep. I do. Mm-hmm. At night. It's, it's just, I can't, it's too hard mm-hmm. not to. It's too hard to, I can't think. I'll go weeks, weeks without sleeping to the point that I'm just, I can't process information. I cry all the time. It's, it's awful. Without medication, you would actually go a week or more without Absolutely. any sleep? Are with, you serious? Have with, you done that? Fits. I mean, I'll get in bed. I get very mm-hmm. anxious. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is... The, ang- the anxiety is based on the fact that I'm not sleeping and I know I need to get to sleep because yes. otherwise I can't process information. I'm going to cry all the time. Um, so the anxiety comes from that. But then um, the, just brain racing, even with the Ambien, as soon as the Ambien wears off, the brain kicks back on again. Mm-hmm. I've tried all kinds of things to stop that one, th- you know, mindfulness and meditation. And I just I, I can't make it work for me. Mm-hmm. I don't even I really can't understand how to do it. I think I have fairly severe ADHD as well, which it probably doesn't help. Mm -hmm. But as far as 
I, I wouldn't change any of that, though. I don't want to change the mm-hmm. mind racing. I yeah, don't want to change yeah. the way the connections I that I make and how things move from one to another. Mm-hmm. I, and if I had to sacrifice all of that for sleep, I don't think I don't think I would do it. Yeah, I understand that. All right, so that's that's your one change is somehow for that to get solved without loss of the accompanying of else. Mm-hmm. characteristics that uh, you like. Yeah, you know, performing musicians have the same question to face uh, in some cases when it comes to stage fright. Mm-hmm. There are drugs, beta blocker drugs. Oh, I've I I know some comics. Oh, who, is that right? Use those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it is very common in professional music. Um, for soloists and orchestra players who are, whose performances are impeded by stage fright, which can be a debilitating professional condition when you are a performer, because it really does make your performances worse and lower your career chances and all of that. Right. And um, But many people, either justifiably or not, because they've had experience with the medication or they haven't and they're simply afraid of this, um, won't take them because... That nervous energy, that edge, also contributes to exciting musical performances, dynamic musical performances. They don't want to dull that, but they want to get rid of the stage fright, which is a physiological condition and makes it difficult to play the instrument. Do you suffer from stage fright? Oh, yes. Have you ever tried? I tried once. Did you? I have a friend, another pianist, who does use the beta blockers, and he gave me some. And uh, And he shall remain nameless. Yeah, I think he will. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with taking them. They're perfectly legal. He has a prescription for them. Right, but it's his prescription. The illegal part is giving you any of them. Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's legal for him or her, whatever. Yes, neither one of us was troubled by that aspect of it. Um, So one performance, uh, it wasn't... It wasn't a high-profile, big stage, bright light thing. And you and I have talked before about how that actually eases my stage fright mm-hmm. somewhat, the more formal the situation. This was a, re- a house recital in a living room. And so I took this thing, and I thought leading up to it that perhaps it was having a good effect. You know, the, um, the fight-or-flight reaction that begins to build in me as performance time draws closer seemed a little bit lessened. But then when I got to the piano and began playing... It was different enough. I actually suffered a memory slip, which is unheard of. In, oh, wow. In a lifetime of performing, I've never had a memory slip. And so I thought, I, you know, I don't know whether that was the drug, and, and I'm still nervous as hell, so whatever's going on here, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it again. Not, not worth it. Music drives me crazy. It gets stuck in my head. It's part of the, I guess, ADHD thing. Mm-hmm. I, I get obsessed with it i cannot get the songs out of my head mm-hmm. when i was a kid and i'm still singing this she wore an itsy bitsy teeny weeny mm-hmm. yellow polka dot bikini me and you and a dog named boo my boyfriend's back and there's gonna be trouble mm-hmm. beach baby beach baby give me your hand i met her on a monday and my heart stood still a do run 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 a do run run so that's the k-tel commercial for the greatest hits record from oh. like 1970 Uh it has been in my head since the first time I heard it on TV. Yeah, thanks for putting it back in mind. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But so it it gets anything that's repetitive and will get stuck in my head. I try to avoid listening to music that has lyrics. 
because mm-hmm. that is a mm. earworm for me. Mm. Um, you listen to books now, maybe partly I do listen, why. It, it may be, I, very, I almost never listen to music. I listen mm-hmm. to talk radio, I listen to NPR, I listen to BBC, I listen to books, um, things that won't get stuck in my head. <laughs> Now listen, these dogs have not pulled their I, weight in this podcast. Because we have locked them into another part of the house. No, I let them free. Did you? I did. After we talked to Mike. we um, The dogs are part of the podcast, obviously, part of the Sit, Stay podcast. But uh, when we talk with people, um, whether those guests come into our studio or whether we talk to them on Skype, we do put the dogs away in uh, a faraway room of the house so that they won't interrupt the interview. But here they are down here. They're just hot and oh. tired, I think. Nellie is actually under the desk. Yeah, she is. Okay, so do we need to excite their vocal participation with the piano? Nellie! Nellie! Let's go. I'm going over wow, to the piano. she's got nothing for me. I know. Where's, where's Bing? Can you play something Celtic? No. You know I can't. No, you just said that to I didn't. reveal my no. <laughs> pianistic inadequacies. <laughs> All right. There he is. Oh, Bing. Oh, Bing. There it goes, there, Nelly. Nelly. All right, let's do that again. wildly effective <laughs> works every time <laughs> makes practicing a pure pleasure i can tell you that <laughs> they will continue if i when i begin a practice session for a minute or two and get it out of their system and then they calm down and bing will even come in and lie under the piano oh that seems it, or maybe maybe i don't understand the mechanics of of a piano, would it not be really loud yes, under there? Yes, it's loud under there. I sure, mean, much sound goes straight down. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay, that's what I. And uh, so we don't know whether the piano bothers him and hurts his ears, and he's complaining about it, or whether it's just instinct to howl with a certain type of noise. And but you'd if think it hurt him. I don't think he'd go under. I know. And sometimes he'll come in and sit, just sit next to me mm-hmm. for an hour while I'm practicing. How long do you usually practice, and how often? Not nearly as much as I would if I didn't have, you know, a career. (laughs) (laughs) So I practice, uh, it varies quite a bit, maybe seven hours a week, which is a very small amount Mm -hmm. for, uh, for. God, that seems like a lot to me. Yeah, no. Well, when I was growing up, when I, you know, I started when I was six about and um, got serious fairly quickly. So I I entered a, a local music school when I was 10 and was there for three years. And so when I was 10, I decided I needed to practice three hours a day. And that's what I did after school every day. Man. And you decided that. That wasn't thrust upon you. you... It wasn't thrust upon me. My parents were supportive. And my mother, who really, uh, she grew up as, as a writer, a rather precocious teenage writer who sold her work to magazines. Mm-hmm. And um, so she knew what it's like to be strongly inclined as a child to one thing or another, to a creative endeavor. So she she supported it, and maybe a little more than that. She said, you know, really, you should, 
if this is going to become something, you should treat it seriously. You should mm-hmm. practice a lot. And, but um, so three hours a day was a pretty happy regimen for me. I liked practicing, although I like it more now. Even I, I love practicing it now. And many professional pianists don't really love practicing. They love performing. Mm-hmm. Practicing is entirely different. Practicing is not playing through the pieces you know. It's it's you know trying to get better. It's a lot of spade work. It's difficult work. It's problem solving on the keyboard. I don't know that I've ever practiced anything like that. Mm. Practice is a is a life discipline that musicians understand and I think apply more broadly to other things. Mm-hmm. It's just a way of life. It, you know, constantly and, trying to get better. At the pieces of it. So when when you're talking about practice, you said you're not playing through it. Mm-hmm. I like playing through things. Mm-hmm. I like playing through a set. I don't like practicing a specific joke or the way I'm going to mm-hmm. tell it. But do you? Um, n- not much anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I practice by getting on stage and working through the joke and getting an organic response to it. Well, I think that's the case with many. Pro- I know it's the case with many professional pianists as well because they perform so much. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned that you played violin as a child mm-hmm. and took lessons. Mm-hmm. How was practicing then for you? It was terrible. I never even mm-hmm. took the violin home. I was second chair, first violin, all state orchestra, but I just never. You just, never, I never practiced? Practiced. I never even took it home. I just left it in the music room at school all the time. You took lessons there in the music room at, at school? Yeah, so I was in the school orchestra uh-huh. for. I guess all of middle school. So you learned how to read music. Mm-hmm. I, you... I was playing, so I learned to read music playing piano. So I took private piano lessons uh, as a kid and learned oh. to read music that way. And okay. then when did that started start? violin? I was pretty young. I was in elementary school, I think, when I started first taking lessons. And again, I liked to play, but I hated to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could play, I could read music. I did mm-hmm. quite well. I, I went to recitals and did some competitions and stuff as a mm-hmm. kid but mm-hmm. you get to a point where okay so you're pretty good at this you have some natural inclination for it uh-huh. do you want to get better at that yeah. if you do then you have to work at it and yeah. i always got to that point i'm like nah, i'm good well did, <laughs> <laughs> did you <laughs> did your teachers encourage practice did they because I mean, from oh, the absolutely. very start my, it used to drive my mother insane because oh, yeah. she i mean to to try and get me to practice and uh, just I, it was such a grudging. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of your childhood pieces? Would you like to? There's a piano right next oh, to you. Oh man, no, mm-hmm. no. I'd have to. And and I look at your music mm-hmm. and the thought of trying to mm-hmm. actually read that and make my fingers do those things. I have a piano in my house too. You do? I do. What it's, kind? Uh, I mean, it's is a, it an upright? It's or an upright. Uh huh. It was my mother's piano when she was a kid. It was my piano growing up. A vintage piano. It's very vintage. It's probably from the 30s. Well, I think I've I've shared my philosophy on having children, that people have children so they don't have to throw away any of their family antiques. (laughs) Is that why they do? They just saddle their children with these things. And my parents have a million pieces of antique furniture that are supposed to so i have to be very careful about becoming emotionally attached to anything my Mm -hmm. mother is highly emotionally attached to everything Mm -hmm. every piece of antique furniture every old roll of wrapping paper that she has Mm. all of the twist ties any number of bungee cords lots of coolers things many many things my mother has emotional attachments to it is um are you listening? Julia's mom, are you listening? Diana, listen. 
<laughs> you don't know how psychically burdened you are by this compulsion to save everything. Be free. Be and, free, Diana. And how psychi- psychically burdened your daughter is <laughs> by the realization. This is a daughter who turned Mother's Day into only child day. <laughs> on Facebook, (laughs) preaching that Mother's Day was a beautiful opportunity for parents to celebrate their only children. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, without me, what is she? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she took it well, I have to say. She was a good sport through that rampage. It's not the first time she's heard that. One of the things I think that my parents most effectively instilled in me um, is a sense of humility. (laughs) The look on your face, (laughs) trying to decide. Well, the look on your face, boy, that was a a tour de force of performance art. (laughs) I have perhaps missed my calling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've chatted up a storm. We certainly have. Enjoyably, as always. Mm. I think we're winding down. I look forward to these every Saturday. Yes. I enjoy it very much. Mm -hmm. Of course, me too. Until next week, then. Goodbye, Julia. Goodbye, Brad. (laughs) 